Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our fourth episode on the BPP Diversity and Inclusion podcast. We're here on what was a beautiful Friday, it's a bit dark now, to mark the end of LGBTQ plus history month. Although like many other topics that we have discussed, it's not something that should really ever be forgotten. Today we're touching on themes of how LGBTQ plus awareness and specifically trans awareness has developed within the legal sector, but in general as well. How to become a better trans ally and how intersectional identities can be reconciled as, as well as many other things. My name is Patricia Coogan and I'm joined by my fellow ambassadors and co-hosts Irene Estethu and Maisie Lee. So if you can briefly introduce yourselves. Yeah, hi everyone. So my name is Irini. Uh, thanks for the intro, Pat. Um, I'm honestly really excited for this episode. I'm very happy to have uh, our guest here with us and the overall message that we're trying to kind of translate through this episode. Um, hi everyone, uh, my name is Maisie. Um, I am a student currently at BPP um, studying the LLM LPS. I also am very excited about this episode. I'm very grateful that Rachel was able to join us today and um, yeah, it's something I'm really passionate about. Hopefully we can get some great information from Rachel and get lots of questions answered and spread awareness among the students of BPP. So thank you. Thank you for introducing yourselves. Um, and now it is really my great pleasure uh, to welcome our wonderful guest, Rachel Reese. Rachel Reese is the founder of Go Global Butterflies, which is a trans and non-binary inclusion company working in the business sector and particularly in the legal se sector. By working closely with companies, Global Butterflies' mission is to help organizations adopt a zero tolerance approach to transphobic behavior and attitudes whilst also taking steps to help them become more inclusive in their cultures. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to join us today, Rachel. It's really lovely to have you. You're very welcome. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for asking me. Also, I just wanted to mention as well, just as a disclaimer before we really begin, um, I wanted to say that although we're obviously doing our best not to offend you, um, we might make mistakes, so please correct us, because um, the last thing we want to do there are no bad mistakes if they're not done with bad intention. Uh, that's what we, how we train with companies to help them get a foothold. So as long as you're not doing it with bad intention, it's fine. You have to learn. It's all good. Cool. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the first thing we'd like to discuss then is about the creation or even the strengthening of your identity. When did you realize that you were part of the LGBTQ plus community? Um, what was coming out like the first time? How have you learned to come out to new people later on? Um, really, what has your experience been? Wow, that's a, a, a very short question with a very long <laughs> answer. Uh, all I remember is that I felt fairly, fairly isolated by that because I started to get bullied at school. I was the boy that put the dress on and was bullied right through my secondary school. People remembered that. And through the 70s, I was, there were two television channels that were black and white. Uh, I often say this in, when I'm talking about this, and it, it wasn't any, there weren't any role models or anything on the television at that time. So I didn't know anybody else was doing what I was doing. So I was stealing my sister's clothing, um, uh, jumble sale clothes, anything. Um, and right through my teens, the only way I could express if there was a party, you know, I would always go as a girl. 
um, any, or a pop singer or anything to, and even when I got to university, I was like that, trying to get any party, any way to, first of all, I started going to what we call well, cross-dressing clubs, which weren't really, um, so I wasn't really seeing transgender people and, or, or transsexuals as we were called back then. Um, these were clubs just for people to, to come and dress, but I, you know, they may have been on their journey to being transgender, but it, they were kind of glam clubs. It was what you were talking about glam music. They were very aberesque music, flashing dance floors, very safe, a lot of fun. Um, and then I found more transgender clubs, people that were a member of the trans and non-binary community, though non-binary wasn't really understood then. They were non-binary people existed. We just didn't have the terminology for it. And I thought, there's my people, you're my people, I found you. Um, and I knew I could do something about that. Looking for a job in law because then I went to, I'd gone to law school, got my diagnosis of gender dysphoria at that point. I needed to get a training contract. I was going for law firms in looking as, I was Rachel, trying to get expressing female, just couldn't get those training contracts in the 90s. Um, so I went back in the closet and I came out in my male expression and got offered two training contracts, but I wanted to transition and I was getting pretty dark. Um, because in the early nineties, I was having, you know, I had lost friends to prostitution, drug overdoses. Some of my friends died of AIDS and I was living this double life. My, none of my friends or my work colleagues knew that I was trans. So, and I didn't tell them, but I was living on this dark side of London in the club scene where I was losing people all over the place and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. And it got darker and darker and eventually I had to transition. So I joined the university of law, the college of law, as it was then in male expression and I, I got into the job as an associate director and there were gay staff on the and I thought I can I'll be safe here I definitely could think I can transition here so I told them uh, and that was 20 years ago and they were really really good um they weren't really experienced they didn't know quite you know it wasn't that common um and but it came down to respect communication and a bit of project management and I transitioned um and my life awoken to music to color to um i thrived I, I was allowed to be myself in the workplace i moved up the ladder very quickly to operate their operations director production director and i worked at the university of law for 15 years running their um you know a lot of their technical systems um and i left five years ago um as you are aware i'm sure we'll come on to this to set up global butterflies um i felt the trans and non-binary visibility was not great in law and it needed to be. And so I decided that I'd go and do something a bit more uh, proactive than I had been. How has that experience changed or developed since coming out as a trans woman? Because things mm. seem to be different now compared to then. 20 years ago, it was, you know, people weren't, I mean, the, the, the trans community was closer 20 years ago than it is now. It's a bit more fragmented now. Um, I think that was because there was a greater risk of of being, you know, beaten up, murdered, not getting employment, wasn't a lot of protection. Um, and so the community looked out for each other. Um, and I think we still do today, but I think um, there are different challenges on the community. I think there was always a straight line of inclusion, like all other characteristics. You will go like it was with the legalization of homosexuality or section 28. There have been battlegrounds, but there's been a line of inclusion through organizations. Uh, for trans and non-binary, I would say that was the same for us. We have battled, we've got legislation, we've had the Gender Recognition Act 2004, which is out of date, needs to be updated. We've got the, the Equality Act, which doesn't, hadn't really covered non-binary people, but kind of does because of the Jaguar Land Rover case and, and has moved forward. 
And, you know, I've done, you know, I did, I remember doing a speech in 2017 for Pride in London gala dinner and saying that trans rights were, you know, we, we were rocking it and the UK was great. And then boom, and the, we have fallen back as a country uh, for trans and non-binary rights. And we are horribly going in the wrong direction as compared to some of Europe. Um, even the States has now bounced back with Biden. Um, Biden administration, Kamala Harris. So um, the UK is definitely going in the wrong direction, um, but I, I am optimistic that it will change. I definitely hope it will too. Um, from some of the research that I did, um, I looked at the National LGBT Survey, which came out in, or was updated in 2019. And it's still shocking, um, the results from that. Um, one of them I read that more than two thirds of LGBT respondents said they had avoided even holding hands with a same sex partner for fear of a negative reaction from others. Yeah, I mean, Emma and I, we're trans, Emma and my partner is trans. And so we're true trans women that live together. And, you know, we, we you know, Emma is a hand holder and um, we hold hands and we walk. But if we see anything we don't like, we feel that we are, we've just let go of each other. We just automatically let go of our hands, walk around that person or whatever. And once we pass, we hold hands again. It, it It's a way, it's a shame that we still live in a world like that. Um, and when we travel again, you have to be careful in different countries as well. So um, we're just friends traveling, you know, depending where you are. It's really, it's really heartbreaking. On the face of it, it seems that things are getting better, but you, I mean, you're still not able to live your best life as a happy couple. And so I also wanted to ask, um, how has the media's portrayal of the LGBTQ plus community um, affected overall inclusion within society or even with businesses and the legal sector so that's an interesting question and it depends which part of the media and it depends on what type of so if you're talking about drama uh, i'd say that that's been a road of inclusion slowly i mean it's a sin i don't know if you've seen it's a sin that was very good there's been lots of things like poser posy and disclosure um, which have been really informative and educational especially for younger generations about what a lot of us went through in the past um, so that's really good. And you see good role models, uh, trans actors, non-binary actors in Orange is the New Black and Hollyoaks and, you know, that kind of thing. So those, that's the very, very positive aspect of it. And that's lovely. And, but they have been, they have, they've gone through an, a genesis. I mean, you know, trans people always were always you know, portrayed as serial killers and things like that in older films and things. Like they stopped doing that now. <laughs> and actually trans and non-binary actors are playing trans and non-binary roles as well, which is nice. But in the past, you know, you look at like, I don't know, um, some, I can't remember some of the films, but you know, they, they, the character has been supposedly transgender and, and a serial killer and things like that. Silence of the Lambs, that kind of thing. It doesn't help <laughs> our brand. So, um, so there's been a journey with film and television, but they, you know, essentially they're good. If I was to talk about reporting LGBT rights, I would say that, you know, the British media is, is a challenging legalization of homosexuality. They described men, you know, as, you know, sex pests and pedophiles and, and said some terrible things about that. And then we had the section 28, same kind of thing, same, you know, demonization, and then of course the, the law gets passed and or, or Section 20 gets dropped and, and all of a sudden, you know, the papers just stop reporting it and everybody moves on. 
So right now, we're at this point where trans community is getting vilified. 80% of articles in newspapers are anti-trans. They're not reported correctly. They're based on false evidence. We spend a lot of time at Global Battle Fridays helping allies to saying, use this thing. I don't know, you, any of you people have heard this thing called Google. It's really, really good. Um, you just have to go on there and start Googling and you find the evidence within five minutes of, you know, are all, are all trans people detransitioning? No. Are trans women a risk to women in lose? No. But it doesn't take five seconds to do that research. And good allyship is about you know, educating yourself or what you're seeing in the newspapers. But right now they're vilifying trans people. The social media is even more toxic. People, everybody's shouting and nobody's listening. So you've got all that going on uh, in lockdown. So the trans and minor community are in meltdown. You know, a lot of mental health issues. I, I don't sleep wonderfully well. You know, Emma and I get attacked quite a lot on social media. And this is current climate that we're living in. Um, the, this descent since 2017 I've been talking about. But I do believe that, you know, once we, uh, yeah, this, this transphobia will pass and the media will move on to something else. Um, and they'll forget that they were ever like this and, you know, and, we will, and we'll move on and we'll look back into 20 years time and go, wow, wasn't that horrible? And weren't the British media just stinky about it? But that's where at the moment we're living through it. So drama, reporting, I think reports, newspapers will always report in a way. I mean, again, there's lots of things allies can do about newspapers and the way the British press um, deal with that. But yeah. I think um, even with dramas, um, I noticed a change because when I watched Pose, I had this memory um, that we were also talking about the other day uh, that when I was growing up, um, I was watching the Powerpuff Girls and I only pointed this out to Irene and Maisie the other day, but um, there was a character called him who was very clearly trans, but he was uh, one of the enemies of the Powerpuff Girls. And like even for children, you're already telling them that Transness is something wrong. Um, we don't seem to get that on kids' TV anymore. No, I mean, I think amazing. It is. I think that uh, um, th there has been education and growth in those, even in children's books, that kind of thing. They're talking about gender neutral characters and trans and people. And you know, there are lots of the books talk about people changing their gender expression, and that that's good. And I think that's lovely. Um, and parents let their, let their kids read those things and that's fantastic and that's what we want um you know you can't make your child trans we keep telling parents in training you can't make your child trans trans um you know that but you know if they want to ask questions about it you should let them read about it because that's only natural and it's going on with some of their classmates in school so you know it's a good thing don't make it salacious don't hide it don't punish them for reading it you know let them be inquisitive and one quick question before we move on is um what, if any, role models did you have? That's a very good question. There were two for me. Um, for the first, through the 70s, nobody. There was just, I didn't know anybody else was out there. Um, there was uh, a trans woman called Julia Grant. Uh, the BBC did a documentary, you probably can find it on YouTube, um, who, and it was about, Julia Grant went through um, gender reassignment surgery, as they called it then. Um, and it was her, they filmed all, all her interviews with the NHS and they were horrible. I mean, the NHS were brutal to her. She had a tough time um, and she transitioned successfully anyway. Um, she went off to, she lived in France for a long time. She died only in the last five years. Um, it was the first time that I knew that you could, you could change your gender um, uh, expression and, and it could be done through the NHS. Um, 
it put me off because she was treated so badly, but I hang on in there. The other one was Caroline Cossey, um, who is very happily still alive um, and on Facebook. She was a Bond girl. Um, she was outed by, she was one of Roger Moore's Bond girls um, and was outed rather spectacularly by the newspapers. Um, she, her name was Tula, she was a model. Um, she was amazing, um, still is. Um, and that was, she was so glamorous and I wanted to be her. Um, and uh, so that was nice. Those were my two, I think, that really, really, you know, selfless on their work and, the, and their bravery. When you're trying to discover who you are and trying to just find your own path, it's really important to have those role models, especially as children, but even as you kind of grow, grow up. Absolutely. And there are so many more now, um, you know, the, the, in, in the media and activists and things. There's so much more happening. And so many people, you find your role model and attach yourself to them and, and live, try to, to you know, live the life that they've lived in the way that they've lived it because it's a good in many cases it'll be a good example yeah definitely thank you Rachel for answering my questions I think that's a really nice note to move on to Irene's questions as many will consider yourself to be a role model yeah thanks Pat um, I just wanted to focus on your advocacy and actions Rachel within the LGBTQ plus community so we're aware of the fantastic work you're doing. So for the benefit of our listeners as well, could you tell us more about Global Butterflies and your mission? So we do lots of things. I mean, Global Butterflies is one of my outputs. Um, so that was set up um, to do trans and non-binary inclusion. It's a small company. I mean, it just, um, there were four of us in the company, two associates, Emma and myself. I'm the only one that takes a small salary from it. It's an activist company helping law firms initially to become you know, trans and non-binary activist companies and by being inclusive and recruiting and looking after and retaining. Um, and so, and we donate some of our profit away to LGBT organizations. Um, and so the idea was, a, it was an engine that I could say, oh, I work for somebody because when I left the University of Law, I didn't work for anybody. So I set up this engine. And Girl Butterflies has become a really busy uh, organization. Um, and it started in the legal sector. It still works a lot in the legal sector, but it also works in marketing and advertising. We've worked in banking, insurers, uh, investment houses, um, a lot of clothing brands at the moment. So we try to work because trans and non-binary inclusion, we're just trying to get, if you, and we only work in the in a business sector because everybody in the company has only ever worked in businesses. So and we know what that's like to get left behind in big, large organizations. So that's why, Girl Butterflies was formed. We also, all of us do panels and webinars and keynotes, anything. And what I, when we do those, we try to get the companies to donate to a company called Give Out, which is a charity. I'm a, I'm a trustee of Give Out, an international LGBT charity that funds activists on the ground in countries where it's illegal to be LGBT. Um, and so um, most of us all try to do that any panels we do we say well we, we don't charge a few to girl butterflies but can you give it to give out and we've been starting to do a lot more of that so that's another activist area um we keeping my relationship i've worked with the sra trying to help them with their trans and non-binary inclusion and they if you look on their website they've been doing quite a lot they're in the stonewall top 100 for trans and non-binary inclusive employment um, so that's the regulator, which is really important in law, but also membership. So I was vice chair of the Law Society's LGBT Lawyers Division for five years. Um, and that's because, although I'm not a practicing solicitor, the visibility in law was quite poor. 
five years ago. And so I asked me to sit on the committee and representing trans and non-binary lawyers, which I did. I stepped, I've just stepped down from that. Um, but I had a great time. I mean, you know, we've got, we got the flag, I've got the trans flag hanging outside the Law Society on Trans Day Visibility, which was a big step forward. We got, we marched in pride. We did lots of great things. Um, I also work uh, at some of the other activist things in law, working with uh, aspiring solicitors. I don't know if you've heard of aspiring solicitors. They, yeah, good. So Chris Wright runs that. So I'm a trans ambassador um, for that. Um, really great fun. It's my one of my favourites, and you know, give talks to about to trans and non-binary um, young people about how they should apply to law firms and signs and signals they should be looking for that they're inclusive. Um, and Emma and I spend a lot of time looking after. We've got a lot of um, trans and non-binary people in law firms that are not out um, because they don't feel it's safe yet. Um, and so we uh, spend a lot of time talking them through maybe, you know, you know how to come out to their law firms, uh, when they should, if they should, what are the signs and signals they should be looking for. So we spend a lot of time doing that as well. Um, so it's really good. I, I, I don't know, I can't really describe it, but we really enjoy doing that, um, really enjoy helping them. You know, it, it just gives us purpose as trans women. Um, and we're passionate about, you know, law, my brother and sister are both lawyers. Uh, you know, I never practice, but I love, I do love the law. I like law firms. I like uh, working in those environments. Um, that's why we still do so much of it. Um, and I'm just thinking if we can get the legal sector, if we can get that trans and non-binary inclusive, you know, every, all the other sectors will follow. And they are, and they're not as advanced as law. So what's the biggest challenge you tend to see when working with firms in adopting an inclusive culture? Uh, and adopting a trans-friendly workplace, both within the legal sector and other business sectors? I suppose the, the challenges are the same, actually. I mean, sometimes you don't get leaders, senior leadership support. So there might be the LGBT network or the ally network is running the initiative. And although it's not impossible because they're up with influencing, it, it just is so much harder if you don't have a senior, like it's one of the partnership or the managing partner shining their light down on the, on the initiative. Um, so we like to get at senior leaders first when we're going into an organization, because if you can convert them to believe, you know, understanding that um, trans and non-binary people are great assets um, to an organization, better R&D, happier workforce. I mean, if you're nice to the trans and non-binary people, you're nice to everybody, that's what I have to tell them. And if you do that, all the other workforce can see that you are being supportive and we are great assets. We, you know, we are hard workers. We've been for a lot. We survive. We're survivors. Um, and we're going to be robust and incredibly powerful asset to the workforce. So if you can get the senior leadership on side, um, then you can you can get that. Um, you, you've got a great initiative. The other aspect is that a lot of companies see gender as very binary so they may they may understand that somebody transitions their gender expression you know to trans trans women and trans men uh, they don't haven't got to the concept of people who are non-binary or gender fluid or agender um and that they try to explain that can be a challenge and it shouldn't be um and all their systems and processes are very binary um and talking about titles and pronouns, uh, those things can be, in, for an organization that's done a little bit on trans inclusion, but not much, they think that that is a done deal. And then you're going in to talk about titles and pronouns and, and, not, and non-binary identity. And that sometimes that can be a challenge for them. 
but we we that's our purpose we demystify that and make it just try to explain that using you know the numbers of non-binary people are massive i mean generation z 20 percent could be 20 percent um 50 percent of gen z don't see gender as binary at all so that's the next workforce that's the next that's the next client base so we keep saying to law firms 50 percent of your clients don't see gender as binary they, that's where that's the future your future client base and your employee base so you really need to be doing this now you need to be working on your systems and processes to getting your language right and getting your gender neutral drafting right and getting this done now because your workforce and your clients are changing so those are the challenges, really. Either they no, either no seniorship, no senior leadership support, or that they see gender still a bit binary and they really haven't understood the identity thing at all. But that's not to say that they won't change. It's education, education, education. And then once you get you get in, and we won't go into organisations that we don't think are serious about it. So we tend to only go into organisations where we call DNA spread, senior leadership, HR, client facing, policy, LGBT network, healthcare. It's quite a DNA spread through an organization. If it's a bit bolty on we don't really want to do it. We don't really want to do it. It's not fun for us. I mean, we want to we want to enjoy doing the work as well. So once you take on a client and you say, okay, well, we'll come in, we'll help you with uh, mm. building this community. What are yeah. I guess what are the first steps you take? Um, I'm guessing you first try to understand each client and their business mm. and then try to see how you're gonna build an inclusive community within that. Absolutely, and you know, we only do trans and non-binary inclusion. Um, we inter do all the intersectional pieces with the other aspects, of course, because trans people can be all the other characteristics under the sun. So we, but we, you know, we are trying to bring an organization's knowledge of trans and non-binary up because they have normally have good knowledge of all the other, all the other characteristics under the Ecology Act, for instance, but they just don't have trans and non-binary knowledge. We try to bring them up to that level so they can make it holistically um, include us in all their planning. So I, you know, I like to sit on, you know, panels as a lesbian woman, as a woman. I like to sit on well-being panels, mental health panels, because I have other characteristics other than just being a trans person. So we try to help look at where they are on that journey because they may they may not have even started, and there's no judgment because some people haven't started, and you so you you're starting them from the beginning. Some organisations have done something. So we're trying to work out, we're also trying to work out what they've done. And, you know, so the senior leadership, we need to bring them on side. We need to get to HR because HR do recruitment, gender neutral recruitment, gender neutral adverts. What, you know, how to handle um, unconscious bias and respectful recruitment, looking after our history and our data um, and then employment um, and then uh, making sure that we're protected when we go in that the management's trained and we're safe. So we want to train middle managers as well. And the client facing points as well, because to us, to the community, their client uh, facing points like security guards, venue services, telephone exchange, venue, everybody that's a touch point to the public. Well, those people are their law firms in particular to us. So we wanna make sure that they're respectful um and and know how to communicate properly with the trans and non-binary community but you want to make sure that there's a transitioning or changing gender expression policy in place which is the shot front for me as an employee of what you're going to do to support me in that organization obviously uh, all gender loo um health so we're looking about what they've done and what they haven't done um, what looks a bit too binary what looks where where the non-binary aspects are missing and we're trying to go in there and, and it, it is getting to know that culture 
Um, and we have a very sort of, sometimes it's basic education, sometimes we, there's no awareness in an organization. So we'll go in and do a lot of trans and non-binary 101 sessions, which are fast and furious and funny. We crack a lot of jokes, take demystify the language, when and when not to use pronouns, all that kind of stuff that people worry about and get, get that knowledge into the organization. And that's, I really enjoy it. I mean, I've done four 101s this week and that's just like an information bomb into the organization of language helps them start their dialogue of the things they need to be thinking about at their recruitment, their adverts, their websites, the language they're using, their policies. Um, and that's fun. And, and, and I really enjoy going in. You can assess pretty quickly. You get a feel um, once you're in an organization and just by chatting to the people there. Um, as I say, we, look, we do look after a lot of trans and non-binary people already in some of these organizations. So we, you know, we, get a, we get a quick assessment because we've got people that are there already and they've already given you their, us their view. So we kind of know what needs to be done. Mm. Uh, I guess speaking more towards students now and uh, future applicants. Mm. Um, so what advice would you give them in recognizing firms that have a substantial rather than a superficial commitment to LGBTQ plus inclusivity? Very good question and my favorite question. Um, and I, we do this when I'm training with aspiring solicitors, we talk about this a lot. Um, so it's what I call trans brand. Um, are they, because a lot of firms don't, are doing lots of good work and they don't actually show it, but we actually telling, and, and this brand is also sitting, signaling internally to their employees who aren't out, who don't feel safe to tell them that they're there. So these, these are the same points. But we often tell applicants, obviously, look, you research the, look at their website is the first sign to see if they've got any statistics. Have they ever published them? Are they up to date? Because often you see 2016 was the last time they put their diversity statistics out updates. So have they broken trans and non-binary or LGBT data out? So that's always one. You know, do they have an LGBT network? Do they, is, does the LGBT network actually do anything on trans? Because they're actually really LGB networks quite often. They haven't done any trans events. They've never had any trans speakers. You know, has the firm ever marched in, in Pride? Not necessarily, that might be, it could be brand washing, but, um, but marching in Pride is, a, is one of those things that might be a positive if they had a LGBT History Month event. Just so see if they've had any of those things. Have they, a lot of, some of the Northam sponsor LGBT and trans and non-binary charities. So that's an indicator that they're slightly interested. That's good. Um, web and marketing materials. What faces do you see coming back at you? So are you seeing any LGBT faces, non-binary faces, um, trans faces coming back at you at all? Um, and my partner, she, she joined Thompson Reuters because the MD had interviewed a trans person and it was on the website. It was like, whoa, they're talking about this. It's a strong, strong lead. A lot of transitioners in the law firms that we work and support with tell us that they transition because the senior leader actually mentioned the word trans. Wow. And if they do, at least that's trying to normalize it and they're, and they're talking about it and they're passionate about it. And they're thinking, well, if my senior managing partner or the partner's talking about it, I'm feeling okay about this firm a little bit. So that's one aspect. The other thing is, uh, so web's um, peer rankings, are they in Stonewall Top 100? Are they in the ENEI um, workplace index? Are they in the employees index, business in the community? And lots of um, diversity uh, peer groups that they may appear in. I mean, you have to, you can't get those things easily. So they may have done some work in those spaces. I often say before lockdown is to sit outside the law firm and see if they have any variants in their business where are they are allowing variants in clothing going in and out. Um, that's always an indication. Less less formal, gender neutral clothing. 
Um, if you can get into the reception and sit there, pretend you're waiting and read a newspaper, um, then have a look and see if you're seeing any lanyards, posters, um, flyers, and sometimes people, they put artworks up. Um, is there a gender neutral loony reception? So good one. Um, we always tell firms, put one near reception so your clients can use it. So should, is there one around? If the application form only has two genders, blah, blah, I wouldn't even bother. Um, it means they probably haven't done any work in that space. Um, they should be, uh, if they're still asking for gender on the application form, but if they are, they should at least be another box for me to express my gender identity. Another good area is social media. Look at their Twitter account, look at LinkedIn. Have they ever said anything positive about the LGBT, or in my case, in particular, LGBT, uh, trans and non-binary? So, you know, you've got Trans Day of Remembrance, you've got Trans Day of uh, Visibility, you've got Trans Awareness Week. There's lots of things in the calendar where you could go back to those dates and just see if they've said anything. Um, if they have, that's a really good indicator. And I don't worry, I tell them that that is what they should be doing as well, you know, to be trans and non-binary inclusive. So um, it's, it's a really good indicator. I mean, these are just some simple touch points um and you you get a feel very quickly because then you know how long it takes to do a training contract application i remember how long it used to take me it used to take me a day or so to do one just one so you don't want to waste your time on a company that's not doing anything in that space so you know do your research lots of touch points um you get a feel i mean i used to say phone up the diversity and inclusion um manager if you can find them and just chat to them get a feel for how passionate they are yeah i guess that nicely leads to Mace's question because uh, I kind of you kind of touched on the topic of allyship um, yes and she's gonna cover it as well so I'm gonna oh, pass over to her thank you um yeah so um as Patricia mentioned at the start um this third section is going to be sort of quick fire questions and um, that have been submitted um by BPP students and then also um by other diversity ambassadors as well and the first question that we have um, is I really want to be a trans ally, but I'm scared of getting it wrong and I don't want to offend trans people. Where should I begin? Don't be scared of getting it wrong. I mean, my theory is that you know what men's rare and actors rares is, right? Okay, you should do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, my big belief is that the act isn't guilty if your mind isn't guilty. So I think if you make a mistake, if you're not doing it with bad intent, I, mean, I think that you know, there are sensitive people and I, I, you know, I understand that. But I think that if you're desperately trying to get pronouns right or trying to understand gender identity, the general amount of people in my, my community are not going to worry. I think they're going to be just grateful you're talking about it and you want to be supportive about it. So that's one aspect. There are no bad mistakes we were saying in our training because people won't, if you don't let people make mistakes, they're never going to talk to you and they're never going to be inclusive. You've got to allow them to learn. I make mistakes in other characteristics because I'm learning. I mean, it, it's that, it's the way that has, the world has to work. You can't stamp on somebody um, for making a mistake. Um, if you want to educate yourself, I mean, Google, I, do you remember this thing, Google? It's really great. Lots of stuff on there. <laughs> I mean, trans and non-binary people don't ask us to educate you. Um, lots of trans and non-binary people will, if they're, and they're happy to talk about it, ask them if, it, if you can ask a question, and if they're okay, then that's fine. A lot of us will talk about uh, the subject very quickly, so that's always really, really good um, as an allyship, but talking about the subject is the best thing. Doing your own research is a really good thing. Really good allyship is, I always say, what I call activist ally, which is different from corporate ally, is really, what are you reading in the newspapers? Is that real? Is that really happening? So are all the trans people detransitioning? No, they're not, as I may mention, uh, you know, is are trans women 
you know, in toilets hassling women. No, we're not. Um, and newspapers might say that, but just read what, you know, check what you're reading. Um, act, if you're an activist, you could actually write to the newspapers and complain about it. You can cancel your subscription to that newspaper and tell them why, um, you know, that's a really good, a good ally thing is put your signature boxes, uh, your pronouns on your signature boxes and your emails, put them on your social media. That means I know you're an ally because you definitely are showing me uh, you're us, what I call a safe haven I can go to if I'm having a tough day because I know you get it. So pronouns are really, really good. Retweeting um, trans and non-binary articles in your social media, liking trans and non-binary articles in your social media, really supportive ally thing to do. Um, you know, I think we're saying knowing when to be an ally, it's a 24-7 job. You're not just an ally in the workplace, you're an ally all the time, school gates with your friends, with your family. Um, and I think, um, so knowing when to intercede. So sometimes you stand behind us, there's a saying, you sometimes you stand behind us, the community and let us do our own fighting. Sometimes you fight alongside us and sometimes you need to stand in front of us. And right now <laughs> allies are standing in front of us because we're getting, uh, we're getting attacked out there on the social media in ways that it, I just never expected to have happened in the UK. So that sort of uh, allyship is really important knowing when to intercede um, that takes the situational thing. Um, other things, I was just thinking, um, when you, if you're buying something in a shop or you're filling in a form and there's only two genders, tell them and ask them why. Why have you got two genders on here? I can't, I can't fill in. What if, if, if they just, if, they, if the pull down system only doesn't have an X on it as a title, tell them. Um, so there are lots of surveys. Um, Non-trans people are very good about putting out surveys about trans people <laughs> um, lots of government the government loves doing that so we often say get we, and a lot of anti-trans people fill them in um, so we ask allies to fill them in to counter to balance up to, um, to and it takes time so it's a really great ally thing to do um, I would say if you're really really bored one afternoon write to your MP write to Liz Trust and Liz Trust never mentions trans she doesn't like trans she mentions the T she mentions G and only that, but she won't mention T, purposely does that. Um, so write to Liz Truss, write to Boris, that'll annoy him. So you can, always, you can always do those things as well, writing to your, because I think politicians, once they start getting letters from lots of people, that really worries them. Um, we totally tell corporate companies to write to them. Um, when corporate companies that pay large amounts of tax make a note, write to an MP, they take note. So I think constituents, knowing you're, you can do that. On, if you're really just a bit bored, then do it on social media at them. Um, and the other, I suppose the other thing is um, read books by trans people, buy books by trans people. If you work in an organization that doesn't have a trans and non-binary policy, ask them why they don't have it. Uh, right now I'm telling people to write to Gavin Williamson. Um, you can cut this if you want to, but it, it's, um, so he's looking at this free speech on campuses. Um, it's very important. Um, and nobody's saying that free speech isn't important, but what that will allow is absolute hate speech. Um, so allowing campuses to platform anti-trans campaign as anti-any camp is not acceptable. And, they, and Gavin Williamson wants to be the arbitrator of that. And they'll withhold funding from universities that don't allow absolute free speech. That's actually really the government just saying, let's allow transphobic speakers to come into universities and, and, and be horrendously horrible. So that's, that's some activist act, you know, if you're interested in getting into the um, activist ally thing, I think those are some of the things that I'm, I, I, you know, I ask people, not necessarily when I'm in the corporate activist, but that, that's certainly what people can do. I know a lot of um, the people listening um, would definitely have things to draw from that. So thank you. Um, hey.
the second question we have now um we have already touched on this i believe um it's somebody asking about application forms so um obviously they haven't identified where they applied but they yeah. said they identify as non-binary yeah. um and they always sort of panic when they have to fill out a form um because often the forms don't give them you know options that they think uh sort of reflect their identity and they're saying um on this particular form um the options were male female or prefer not to say and um they said you know by choosing prefer not to say they feel like it they should be embarrassed about their non-binary identification and secondly um they say they worry about whether the firm is going to think that they are um, secretive or dishonest um, in not sort of saying explicitly um, how they identify. And, and I wondered what your thoughts were on that and if you had any advice. It, yeah, it's a very interesting question. And you know, I don't know what the motive of the firm about having a terrible application form is. Um, I think that they prefer not to say. I don't think they will look at that in a, in a sinister way. It's just an unfortunate way of having an application form i think they should have thought that through it's also like when you fill in the diversity data people always worry that you know you can you can put trans and non-binary on their diversity beat and they think that the interview panel is going to know that you're that trans and non-binary if you don't want to disclose that but they those bits are ripped off and sent off in a different direction they don't go to the application team when you're going into a firm so you know any equal opportunity stuff you fill in the the interview panels don't see that so you can put it there it's a funny place to collect it, but I, I think it, it is. Um, I think that's an unfortunate application. I don't think they'll look at it in a sinister way. Um, I, I, I think it's just a very unfortunate form. I think that they really should have either put a, a box in there, that, as you guys said, non-binary, or, or just left it blank and said other other expression of gender. I kind of like allows you to put that. Um, I don't think it's very inclusive to ask that other thing. I, I. I be upset about that i can really i feel for your questioners how how that that might look um but I, it's hard to know what the motive of that firm was i don't think they'll look at it in a suspicious way or you know oh, we've got somebody that doesn't put their gender down this is exciting this will be an intro i don't think they're doing that um but yeah just a badly designed form thank you um and the third question we have um it touches on intersectionality so um obviously this is a specific example um but please feel free to interpret it more widely to your experiences so that you can give an answer. So someone's asking, um, my LGBTQ status conflicts with my religion, making it difficult for me to be my authentic self. Have you got any tips as to how I can reconcile these two identities as they're both important to me? Well, um, that's a hard one because I don't have a conflict with my religion um, and my identity. I think everybody has is multi-layered, as I've said to you, you know, I'm Irish, I'm a trans woman, I'm a lesbian, I'm a woman, as I said, I have mental health issues, I'm dyslexic, I have a, a lot of characteristics um, that make me who I am. Um, religion isn't one of them. Um, I think that, that the LGBT movement, you know, there are a lot of religious organ um, organizations that support the LGBT community. And I think you actually have to find your religion. There are aspects of people's religions where uh, if their religion is, is not supportive, um, you know, I have friends who are in the Jewish faith and have found parts of their faith, it's their church that are supportive and they've gone to that aspect of it. My advice is you know, in, the, in, in the Catholic, um, I'm, I'm a Catholic, I'm not practicing, but, um, but there are aspects of the Catholic church that are accepting and in Church of England, they're not, and standingly happy about the LGBT community. There are aspects of that church and there are churches that are LGBT. So you, I think you have to find your people within your own religion. 
um, and, and connect with them. Our next question that we have is um, in relation to the Gender Recognition Act. Now, you did mention this earlier on. <laughs> yes. um, it, it, was, it was just asking, uh, do you think government made a big mistake um, not initiating reform last year? Because obviously, just for a bit of background for some of our listeners, um, there was a consultation in 2004 um, about changing the Gender Recognition Act and um, uh, government statement was published last year, I believe around September, um, and they chose not to reform it. Um, if you don't mind, Rachel, just explain. I've, I've done some research, but I think it's more interesting to come from you, um, the sort of the significance of that, um, the decision not to reform that act and, and what it's going to have on the transgender community. So, the, yeah, uh, thank you. It's a really good question. And, and the fact is the 2004 Act was revolutionary, the, the uh, Gender Recognition Act 2004. Um, and, you know, I was super excited about it. I mean, I've been around a long time and they fast tracked a lot of us through it um, early on because we there was a there was a fast track for us, some of us that have been around. So I didn't find it a, quite a, I didn't find it a difficult process because I didn't really have to do it because they kind of they kind of flew us through some of us through that. So Emma and I both have gender recognition certificates and we've changed our birth certificates, but it's a really awful process to do lots of you have to do a couple of statutory declarations you have to get medical reports um it's you know, um, from doctors on um for, on gender dysphoria you have to pay um it's you meet there's a there's a, a panel you don't meet it's a um there's a your name goes on a register it doesn't sound very very exciting it sounds a bit dark and and, and i think it, it is a, a stressful process and the problem with that even though it was revolutionary in 04 um, I think we were the first European country to do it. I think the problem is with it, it, it doesn't recognize non-binary people as well. So you either pick male or female and that's it. And it, and it, and it super sucks as a process. And, and the problem with that is that only 5,000 people have, have been through it. You think about it, conservatively 4% of the UK population on the gender identity spectrum. We know that 12% of millennials are probably non-binary. 20% of Gen Z will be probably, well, that act doesn't work. So... We wanted to go with self-ID, which is what Ireland and Sweden and uh, I think uh, Malta and many other countries have got. Self-ID is a great process. It demedicalizes it. You, um, you get your, you, you get your um, gender um, sworn in front of a solicitor and you're going to change your birth certificate and it's da-da. Now, we wanted self-ID, very simple process, non-medicalized process. The government started their consultation. They paused for about a year before they really got going after the big announcement. And as a result of that, a lot of hate groups formed um, based on, started with one person who then started an organization that started another organization. The British press started writing about, men will use this process and declare themselves as women and go into toilets, um, which is a bit weird. I mean, you mess up your pension and your credit cards and your passport and your whole life to go into a woman's toilet as a guy. You know, guys do that anyway. I don't think it, that's a, you wouldn't use the gender recognition app to do that. Um, and so, and it's never happened in other countries that have self-ID. So that was that was fear number one. Fear two, they, you know, they, they, there's a section in the Equality Act that prevents trans women being in single sex spaces. It's not widely, you know, so if I get raped, I could be turned away from a rape clinic. No, I wouldn't be but I could be, even with a birth certificate that says female, because I'm a trans woman, I can be turned away, but they won't, then they don't. But a lot of these hate groups formed and said, ah, you know, lots of people come into women's only spaces and, you know, and the, the Gender Recognition Act and the Self-ID has nothing to do with the Equality Act. Those protections in single-sex spaces are already in place in the Equality Act. So we just wanted Self-ID, Ireland has it, a very simple process, and 
the amount of hate that happened in the British press over this, the fear mongering, the untruths that has been has been written. The government said they consulted on it with a couple of trans groups. They didn't. The Freedom of Information um, request looks like that they might have met just Stonewall, but they met with a quarter. They met with um, some anti-trans groups. I understand. So they were skewed and they were going to announce last summer, it sounded like it's going to be awful. It sounded like they were going to reverse our rights, but actually all they announced was we'll make, we'll put it online, the old gender recognition application process and we'll make it a bit cheaper. That was it. That's not what we were asking for. We wanted to go to full self-ID, a simpler process, and it didn't happen. Um, our government stopped um and, and and rolled it back so it, it it's really unfortunate i never thought i would see that where we would pause and stop um and so the united kingdom as a result has, was number two in the ilga lgbt european rights survey we were number two we fell to number nine and um because of our trans rights um support and now we're number 10 we are going the wrong way fast um on lgbt rights but maybe we've fallen from two to nine to ten because of our trans and non-binary inclusion so we haven't got self-id and we're stuck on the 2004 act which doesn't include non-binary people definitely um thank you so much for that that was really um comprehensive um explanation i know that a lot of people will be interested listening so thank you um that sort of concludes my um my quickfire questions. Um, I, I thought maybe a nice way to sum up would be perhaps your um, thoughts on sort of you know progress from here. Any any thing to end end on that you know any hopes for the transgender community that you might have? Yeah, um, I did. It's all going to get better anyway because and it sounds but your generation are the generations going to fix everything because my generation have generally wrecked everything. So you're the generation that's going to fix the climate because my generation is still going, oh, let's make money and, you know, pollute it. And, and, and it's an awful part, generation to be a part of. I mean, it wasn't just my generation. The one before wasn't so good either. Um, and so you're the generation that's going to fix the climate and, and, be, and also you'll be looking at your generational parenting. Your parents bring you up in a much different way to the way we were brought up. And so my mum and dad were really good. They were really good about my transition. Um, and I think that, you know, if I had your kids, I'd be brilliant at bringing up. It's a generational thing. We already know that, you know, the, 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 the statistics I've mentioned with non-binary um, and trans inclusion in Gen Z and, non and, um, and the millennial generation, it just, it, the numbers game, you are going to, already when I talk to your generation, you're so accepting. I know you correct your parents on pronoun usage when they get it wrong. I know that I hear that again and again from my delegates. You are, the, you really get it. I go into school sometimes and you, you know, the kids have been looking after their non-binary and trans friends who are getting bullied. They are super good. You are going to, I, you know, I'm sure we'll rejoin Europe in 10 years. You'll put us back in. You weren't the generation that took us out. You're the generation will put us back in. Hooray. I am so confident that although this transphobia is horrible in the UK right now, you're the generation that's going to fix it. Um, and it, because you are much more accepting, you're much more broad-minded, and you are, you know, going to change it for the good. So my retirement would be nice. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're pleased about that. Um, 
thank you so much again.